broadcasting from Moscow, Idaho, on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. This is the Campus Reach Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Darrell. This is episode 11, The Jewish Question. Welcome back to another episode of the Campus Reach Podcast on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. Visit our website, crosspolitik.com, see more of what we got going on, a couple of the other shows we have there. Consider becoming a member. We have a, a lot going on behind the scenes. We have some Gary DeMar eschatological discussions coming up, uh, Pastor Toby Sumter on Proverbs, and Lord willing, more uh, materials for subscribers. So if you head over to crosspolitik.com and become a member, you'll have access to uh, some pretty good stuff, including a discussion on the civil magistrates and God and government. So all that will be good stuff. And uh, the last few weeks, we've been having a discussion um, on a kind of a, a basic outline, uh, kind of a trajectory of where you can go when you're doing apologetics uh, with a Jew and you're evangelizing uh, someone who is Jewish because uh, we, in theory, have something in common with them, namely uh, the Torah and the prophets, we should be able to appeal to the Torah and the prophets in showing them why Jesus is, in fact, a Christ. In the first week, we looked at uh, the promise to Abraham, going back to Genesis chapter 12, as well as to Abraham offering up his beloved son, Isaac. And when you consider the Abrahamic faiths, be it Judaism, Islam, Christianity, uh, so to speak, which one looks like the fulfillment of that? It's Christianity. It's God the Father offering up his beloved son and you know, Christianity fulfills that typology as well as a blessing to the nations of where we're at now. And then last week we looked at Daniel chapter two and how the um, uh, the vision that King Nebuchadnezzar saw began with him being the head of uh, gold, going down to uh, the silver, then the bronze, then the iron, and those are successive kingdoms um, leading to the Roman Empire. The uh, legs of iron being the Roman Empire and the rock coming during the Roman Empire and smashing that was, in fact, Jesus Christ. And so uh, the argument there being basically that Daniel chapter 2, in some regard, predicts the timing of the coming of the Messiah, and Jesus fulfills that, that basically the Messiah had to come during the Roman Empire, the Messiah did. And today we're going to actually look at a little more specifics in Daniel chapter 9 of why, even more from a date-setting standpoint, Jesus had to come when he did because of the prophets. Um, but before we get to that, I uh, received a good email that uh, we're going to develop much more over the weeks to come. Hopefully, uh, I'll have some wisdom on this. But I received this email, which I think is important, just asked uh, the, the topic is Christians in corporate America. And he just says, hey, Keith, I wanted to see if there was any way you could touch a little on how to be wise in the workplace about evangelism. Recently, I received the first and final warning for asking someone if they wanted prayer, short version of it. Thus, I'm trying to navigate the process, how we can be discreet but bold about our faith at work without getting in trouble with HR. Uh, this is an office environment. And I think that's a great question, and it's pretty amazing to me. I, I worked in corporate America from 2005 to 2010, uh, basically straight up nine years ago this month I left it, and I, I don't believe I would have ever had problems asking somebody if I could pray for them, and I can't imagine HR ever having an issue with that. There may you know, a straight-up evangelism, uh, there may have been issues, and obviously when other uh, politically correct issues come up, be it homosexuality, um, you know, Obviously, you need wisdom in dealing with that in the workplace. I, you know, you're working in cubes. You don't want to hop up over the cube and telling everybody to repent and pointing out their sins and everything else. It's uh, not necessarily a wise way to do it, nor do I think that's necessarily faithful or biblical. Um, 
I think there's a lot that the Bible kind of lays out with regards to how um, the non-apostles are going about doing evangelism and being faithful in their workplace. So I do think our primary uh, status in the workplace is being good, faithful workers unto the Lord, and then derivatively within that, we'll have a context to be able to do evangelism. So when I when I worked in corporate America, I, I did have the advantage of coming out of seminary and going into corporate America. So I had seminary on my resume. So for many people, um, you know, if if they saw my resume, they're like, you went to seminary? And so uh, that, that was usually followed up by, does that mean you can't have sex? And so I usually thought I was going to be a Roman Catholic and uh, th- therefore a priest and therefore uh, having to abstain for the rest of my life from sex. So that was, that was basically the main concern of most guys. Um, then within that, I was kind of a, a almost like a form of a confessional for a handful of the women at work that, uh, you know, they knew I was a Christian, they thought they could trust me, or they knew they could trust me, and so they'd ask for lunch or something like that, and they'd talk about whatever was going on, so I was, I was somewhat of a, a safety uh, net from that standpoint. So I had that advantage going on for me, uh, that seminary was on my resume, which provided plenty of opportunity to share the gospel, um, but also related to that in a very simple way. Um, every Monday, maybe not every Monday, but a lot of Mondays when people ask what I did that weekend... Um, I would just encourage you guys as well, just mention that you went to church. Um, I can't imagine getting in trouble for answering the question, uh, what'd you do this weekend? And in some regards, you'll have the church context with you. You'll be associated with, oh, the guy who goes to church. And from there, that you'll be surprised that it just opens up doors uh, for people that uh, be at trust or be wanting to talk to you about something. Um, they kind of will give you an opportunity, or at least it did me. And I'm assuming, you know, but again, it is nine years later, and you realize how fast the culture changes and everything else. So maybe it is uh, radically uh, different today. But, but but within that, one of my favorite uh, moments, and I, 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 I hope I didn't mention this in the first episode, but one of my favorite moments ever uh, in, in the workplace was uh, on Easter. And actually, with Easter coming up, you have a good opportunity as well. If anybody um, says Happy Easter, uh, here's what I did. So I received a text on Easter. This is going back a number of years ago, but I received the text, uh, Happy Easter. So I just text uh, the person back with, uh, he's risen. So the next day I get to work and uh, they come up to me and we're like, hey, would you mind having lunch? Would you be able to do lunch? And I was like, yeah, sure. So uh, we go have lunch. And then as we're sitting there, it kind of gets kind of serious and you get, uh, so are you one of those born again Christians. And, uh, I was like, yeah, yeah. You know, I know there's a lot of baggage to that term and especially here in New York, that's where I was living at the time. But you know, all it simply means is, and I began to try to uh, lay out the gospel for them and kind of intertwine with that. They're really into the environment and stuff like that. So I try to uh, explain the new birth as basically like a, uh, like being recycled that I was a old dilapidated can and the Lord renewed me. And so the new birth is not the replacing of the old, but it's the restoration and the renewal of that which was broken down and everything else. So I explained it that way, and that seemed to make a little bit of sense to them. And then we moved into a discussion of the Old and the New Testament, and I try to explain it as uh, how Star Wars began with the, like, episode uh, four or whatever. And so, yeah, because they were asking if they can just start in the New Testament. I was like, yeah, you know, it's kind of like starting episode four. You can get a, you can kind of get an idea of what's going on, and uh, blah, blah, blah. And so it was, I thought it was a really good discussion, and at the time I was actually studying Acts, and I remember thinking apply it to your hearer. So, you know, when I was using the being recycled analogy, I ended up kind of turning it upon them and just saying, hey, so, you know, you need to be recycled and uh, your life has kind of been living wrong and all that garbage, I think may have been the term I used. Because when we got back 
to the workplace, um, they said, uh, Keith says I'm living like garbage and need to be recycled. And, uh, and so suddenly like, Hmm, seemed like a really good discussion at lunch, but it seems a little harsh when you put it that way. So, um, how do we have wisdom in the workplace? Um, we're going to discuss that more. I just wanted to put it on your radar a little bit. And if, uh, anybody out there listening, uh, has some ideas of how they've gone about it, um, I would love to hear from you and maybe kind of drop a compilation from how other people have gone about it. I think it might be a, a good way. So if you want to email me at Keith at campuspreacher.com and give me some of your ideas of how you've gone about it, um, I just told you a little bit about the way I went about it, and I think it will be helpful to have a myriad of perspectives that maybe I can kind of tie into a couple different weeks where we discuss having wisdom in corporate America. But in very basic terms, I'm, it's kind of amazing where we are at as a culture that even asking somebody uh, if you can pray for them has reached a point where HR is involved, whereas nine years ago, I, I don't believe that would have ever happened to me in the workplace. And, you know, I was fairly open about my religious beliefs, and uh, they even had me give a talk at Christmas time. It's like, ah, Keith's a Christian. He can talk about uh, Christmas and so, or at the holiday time. They, and so I had to give a, the Christmas presentation. So, uh, yeah, so here we are nine years later, and the culture changes, and we have to be wise in our evangelism. We need to keep our jobs and everything else. And so, yeah, uh, that's that's a little bit of a, a basic idea. I haven't totally drilled down on how we go about doing it, but there's some basic ideas. Now, this week we're in uh, part three of our look at kind of apologetics to Judaism or ju- to the Jews, and just want to kind of brush on Daniel chapter seven and Daniel chapter nine. And the reason I was originally just going to do a three-part series, now it's four-part. And the reason I'm going to brush on this is because next week we're going to look at uh, Matthew chapter 24 and kind of Mark 13, one of those two passages, was called the Olivet Discourse, and seek to lay out a little bit of, even in the terms of Jesus, how he predicts the destruction of Jerusalem, which I'm going to argue is uh, tied in here to Daniel uh, chapter 9. And also in Daniel chapter 7, we get the coming of the Son of Man language. And so in the New Testament, in uh, Matthew chapter 24 and Mark chapter 13, it speaks of the coming of the Son of Man, and many people think that is that deals with uh, the second coming of Christ. Um, I want to argue that it deals with his ascent to the right hand of God the Father, and we'll deal with that next week. Um, but that language there is all from Daniel chapter 7. So even in your own spare time, if you're following these studies um, or just kind of these brief sketches and looks, uh, read Daniel chapter 7, because then when you go to the Gospels, uh, read Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 9, and some of that stuff will kind of be in the backdrop. And so as you hear the words of Jesus, what you'll realize is that the book of Daniel is often the backdrop for much of what he's saying, and especially uh, the Son of Man uh, stuff that you find here in Daniel chapter 7. And even when you read Daniel chapter 7, it might seem kind of technical at first, and what is going on with all these beasts. But if you listen to last week's uh, talk, and you follow the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire, and then the Roman Empire, um, the vision that Daniel has in Daniel chapter 7, I would say each corresponds, again, with those four kingdoms, and the fifth kingdom to come that we saw in Daniel chapter 2 is the kingdom of God, and the one coming to the ancients of days and everything else. Um, is the I would argue is the fifth kingdom corresponding with that, and so what you see is is actually Daniel chapter two and Daniel chapter seven, um, and even Daniel chapter nine, with a little bit of effort, 
and a little bit of historical understanding, I, I think you can discover that, okay, you can understand this passage. And so you guys can understand this passage. And so we do uh, not only for your own edification, encouragement, and worship of God, that he's been completely faithful to his word, uh, when you're interacting with uh, gainsayers, you can bring them back to these passages and ask them their interpretation. And even when you're doing apologetics, uh, oftentimes they're going to, you know, people ask, you know, how do you know you're interpreting it right, and what's the right interpretation? Um, there's a certain place where you can't make anybody believe what they don't want to believe. Um, and so in Daniel chapter 2, it's reasonable just to ask them, all right, what's your understanding of this passage, and then work it through with them. Um, but the thing I want to spend a little bit of time here uh, that we have left is in Daniel chapter 9. And in this passage, uh, there's so much in here that it would take, you know, I could easily spend uh, two weeks on each thing being laid out here. But the, the main thing I want to tie in here again is, again, the context of interacting with someone who's Jewish and trying to persuade them from their scriptures that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, that I believe that in this passage, you actually have a more explicit time frame reference for when the Messiah will come. Daniel chapter 2 tells us it will come during the Roman Empire. Daniel chapter 7 tells us that the coming of the Son of Man will also be during the Roman Empire. And here, in Daniel chapter 9, he actually gives us a more explicit date. And that's what I want to look at here. So, uh, turn to Daniel chapter 9, and I'm going to read Daniel chapter 9, uh, verse 24 through, uh, we'll go to through 26. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint the most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word, to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again, and squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and sh shall have nothing. And the people, the prince who is to come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. So that's uh, Daniel chapter 9 verses uh, 24 through 26. And there is uh, tons here to discuss, but I'm going to try to make this as simple as possible in tying into the idea of the time frame of the coming of Messiah. So remember, Daniel chapter 2, the kingdom would come during the uh, fourth empire, which is the Roman Empire. Daniel chapter 7 also points in that direction. And even more specifically, here in Daniel chapter 9, it gives us a more specific time frame of when the Messiah would come. So if you look at verse 24, it says, 70 weeks are decreed, and some translations may have 70 weeks of seven or 70 years of seven. Uh, so basically the idea is 490 years. If you take 70 times seven, that's 490, and the weeks are being representative of years, so that's 490 years. And so uh, basically the idea is, uh, are decreed about your people and your holy city, and... Uh, and so it says this in verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem. So the question becomes, when did that word go out? And there's a little bit of debate of when it goes out, whether it was uh, the words of Cyrus or, or, or Taxerxes. Uh, but I believe it's the decree of Artaxerxes. Uh, Somehow I'm pronouncing that right. I'm pretty sure I am. Um, so if you turn to Ezra... Um, chapter 7. So, so realize this. First of all, uh, Jerusalem was destroyed in 587, uh, sacked by uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians. Uh, they destroyed Jerusalem in 587. And so when Daniel's writing this, 
uh, Jerusalem is not yet restored. And so Cyrus does give a decree to go and build a temple, uh, but not all of Jerusalem. And so in uh, Ezra uh, chapter 7, uh, verse 11, it says, or I'll start in verse 12, at Taxerxes, uh, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, peace. And now I make a decree that any one of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. So if you read all of Ezra uh, chapter 7, I believe that's the decree uh, that Daniel prophesies about. And that decree uh, would have been right around, I think it's uh, 457. So if you take 457 and you add 490 to that, you come to roughly uh, 80, 30, 31, 32, 33, uh, depending on exactly how you want to uh, calculate calculate your math. Um, so you would have been coming to a period, but say AD 33, um, which kind of corresponds in general with the day that Jesus died or around the time frame that Jesus died. And it speaks of the Messiah being cut off. And then it goes on to speak of Jerusalem being destroyed, which we're going to look at uh, more thoroughly next week in Jesus' prophecy. And uh, and so yeah, I'm, I'm I'm trying to make this as simple as possible without getting too fancy. So there's it's a little bit loose, but if you are uh, thinking through this passage, Daniel chapter nine, uh, and you're looking in the Old Testament for the point of the decree, I believe uh, that Ezra uh, under King Artaxerxes makes the most sense. That occurs in 457. Uh, you add 490 years to that, you come out roughly. AD 33, Jesus cut off, and this passage here speaks of the Messiah or the prince being cut off, being killed, and so I think it's a fulfillment of the prophecy. Then it goes on to speak of the destruction of the city and the sanctuary, which happens in AD 70, and I'm going to uh, develop that more next week under Jesus' prophecy on the Olivet Discourse. So if you step back and you think about it for a second, and you're speaking to a Jewish individual, uh, you take them through Daniel, and you know we just kind of gave you a rough and dirty outline of what's going on there. Uh, but I believe that you can point in the direction that from their own prophets, they predicted that the Messiah must come in the first century, that their prophets predict that the Messiah will be cut off, but they also predict that he'll be coming in glory. And so Daniel chapter 7 needs to uh, relate to Daniel chapter 9. He's going to be cut off. He's also coming in glory. How do these things come together? How do they relate to Jesus being killed? his ascension to the right hand of the Father, and then the destruction of Jerusalem. I believe all these things uh, tie in quite well. And obviously the early church writing before the destruction of Jerusalem uh, could not necessarily know that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed uh, by the Roman Empire, and uh, therefore kind of tying into the Jewish system, Jesus is in turn a prophet. So that's what we're going to look at next week, as how Jesus is a prophet. He predicts the destruction of Jerusalem, which is uh, strongly... Um, predicted in Daniel, and I think we should all be amazed that Daniel, uh, writing uh, some 490 years before it all happens, tells us that, uh, or even well longer than that, five, five centuries before it happens, but he predicts from a going out of a decree, the decree happens after he dies, the decree goes out, and corresponding strongly with the decree, 490 years later, the Messiah is cut off, and then Jerusalem is destroyed. So, in our apologetic endeavor and in our evangelism, we should be able to sit down with the prophets and show why Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And I believe that we can show uh, we have the most reasonable explanation of what Daniel prophesied about, what has happened in history, and why the Messiah did come during the Roman Empire. He was cut off, and he did destroy the city and the sanctuary in AD 70, just as he uh, said that he would. So, you know, 
very bare bones sort of look. I don't want to get too fancy. There's a lot there that we can study and look at. But if you have any questions uh, regarding how I address those passages and uh, why I picked uh, Arcteryxes over, say, Cyrus's, I can go into those details a little bit more. But I just wanted to give you a bare bones sketch of because uh, maybe those are some passages that you're not that familiar with of uh, understanding how the Old Testament predicts uh, the coming of the Messiah. Uh, so that's this week's episode. Next week, we're going to uh, hopefully discuss a little bit more of uh, evangelism this week uh, of what's going on on campus here in Idaho. Um, we'll also discuss a little bit more maybe uh, evangelism in the workplace, especially if I hear from some of you on how you go about it. I think it'll be very helpful. And uh, finally, we're going to uh, very briefly sketch uh, the Olivet Discourse, which you can read in Mark chapter 13 or Matthew chapter 24. So hopefully all this makes sense. I, I, I do think it's uh, something if you just spend a little bit of time thinking through, it's uh, kind of easy to, to tie in the threads together. So thank you for listening. Hopefully uh, we'll hear from you during the week and we'll talk to you next week any questions comments demands rebukes exhortations feel free to uh, contact me at keith at campuspreacher.com or on the twitter at evangel campus evangel uh, so that's twitter handle is campus evangel thanks a lot for listening talk to you next week knowing that the harvest might well come before the bloom he runs on his way, there's no time to be going slow. Hurry, take what you've got, do with it what you can.